Welcome to Do We Know Things, a podcast where we examine things we think we know about sex. Content warning. This podcast will include discussions of sex, religion, and virginity. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Lisa Don Hamilton, professor of psychology and sex educator. Today on Do We Know Things, I'm turning the podcast over to Julia Kaufman to talk to us about virginity. Julia is a Bell Scholar intern from Mount Allison University who worked with me this summer doing many things, including writing this episode. So without further ado, here's Julia. What is virginity? Judging by today's media, it's a pretty big deal. Hundreds of songs are written about it. Every TV teen drama has the very special episode where the two leads decide to do it or not. Whole movies are based on the premise of horny guys trying to get some for the first time and the women who stand in their way. Teen stars are asked about their virginity status, and if they don't answer, the tabloids will speculate about it anyway. But what if I told you something else? What if I told you that virginity isn't real? That's right. Despite everything you've watched, listened to, and read about virginity being this huge deal, It's not a thing. So why do we put so much attention on this thing that isn't even real? On this episode of Do We Know Things, we're going to break down the myth that is virginity, figure out where it comes from, who benefits from the cultural obsession with it, and hopefully deconstruct some of it in the process. So what is the virginity myth? If you ask most people what a virgin is, the answer is probably that it's someone who hasn't had penis and vagina sex. Although, as I'll allude to later in this episode, some current studies have found that the definition is a bit more fluid nowadays. So for the most part, virgin equals someone who has not experienced PVI, and not a virgin equals someone who has. The implication here is that something happens to the body, particularly to the female body, to change between the virginal and non-virginal state. And here's where I'll bust the first myth of virginity. There's no drastic physical change to the vagina as a result of having sex for the first time. Yes, something might happen to the hymen, but I'll discuss that in depth a little later in this episode. Like I said in the introduction, virginity isn't real. It is a concept that has been created by men, is used to reinforce patriarchal ideas, and has changed over time. But before I launch into the history of virginity, I want to note that just because virginity is a constructed concept and is not physiologically real, doesn't mean there are not extensive social and emotional ramifications related to it. Doing anything for the first time, whether it be a sexual act or something like surfing, can feel like and be a big deal. Deconstructing the virginity myth is not about invalidating the weight of new intimacy or exploration of sexual activity. Instead, it's about challenging our beliefs around it, so the focus can be on the level of the individual. You should get to make your own meaning about your own sexuality. As I said earlier, the most common and assumed definition of virginity is based on what has or hasn't happened to a body. Specifically, we think of the hymen and what happens when a vagina is first penetrated by a penis. Although that might be a current understanding, there have been various conceptualizations of the term throughout history. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, the word virgin was first used in the 1200s and meant an unmarried or chaste maiden or woman distinguished for piety or steadfastness in religion and regarded as having a special place among the members of the Christian church on account of these merits. So right off the bat, we can see that the idea of virginity is specifically associated with women and that it was tied to women's value. 
By the 1300s, the Oxford English Dictionary cites the word virginity as referencing a person's lack of sexual activity or a woman's unmarried status. Of course, the concept of virginity existed before the word was used in written English, but it is interesting to trace the history in language. The connection of virginity to something physical was actually for a very specific and quite disturbing purpose. Historically, women got passed from father to husband, and when they were married, they were expected to have children. But the only way for a husband to know for certain that the child was his was if his wife was a virgin when they conceived. This is grotesquely highlighted in the first come, first serve, or you break it, you buy a tradition of marrying off women to their rapists, which was done because from the point of assault onward, the paternity of any of their children would be questioned, making them damaged for other potential future husbands. Maybe the most famous story of questioned paternity is the Virgin Mary story. According to Christian mythology, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was nicknamed the Virgin Mary because she was impregnated by the Holy Spirit, thereby having a virgin birth. However, the actual translation could just mean maiden in English, which would just mean unmarried. The Mary as Virgin story came several hundred years into Christianity. And interestingly, Mary herself was believed to be immaculately conceived, meaning that even though her parents had sinful sex to conceive her, she was cleansed of her sin in the moment of conception. After she became pregnant, she married Joseph, who has been praised for staying with Mary. But this is not a story of a man believing a woman, because Joseph was sent a personal message from God telling him that Mary was indeed impregnated by the Holy Spirit. Another famous example of virginity is the Vestal Virgins of ancient Rome. Vesta, the virgin goddess of ancient Rome, was represented by a flame in her temple, which was minded by six Vestal Virgins. These women were recruited from the elite class of Rome as children and trained to fulfill very specific duties, most important of which was keeping the flame, which represented the ongoing success of the Roman Empire, alive. These women had to remain virgins because they had to be unmarried and independent, aka not controlled by a man. In some ways, it was one of the most powerful positions for a woman in that context because once she completed at least 30 years of service, she would be wealthy enough to retire and be independent something other women could rarely do. However, these women were not given a choice as to whether they would be Vestal Virgins, and in that sense had no basis of autonomy. Furthermore, if a Vestal Virgin was even accused of losing their virginity or becoming unpure, the consequence was death, a clear example of a woman's value being tied to what she did with her body. A somewhat more recent example of the attention and value that has been connected to women's bodies and sexuality is Queen Elizabeth I, also referred to as the Virgin Queen. Her choice not to marry or have children became a huge part of her public identity, and speculation about a private life followed her throughout her reign and after her death. The fact that she's still called the Virgin Queen shows how intensely her body and sexuality was, and still is, focused on. It wasn't until the early 1600s that virginity was first associated with the hymen, a claim made by the physician Halkiah Crook in his famous anatomy textbook. More on the hymen later in this episode. Who does the virginity myth benefit? The myth of virginity is that it exists, that something changes in the female body after vaginal penetration. This is just not true. So virginity is not a physical characteristic. There is no drastic physical change to the vagina as a result of having sex for the first time. So what's the point of pretending virginity is real? Virginity has long been seen as a marker of purity, and purity is often defined by virginity. Around the world, these concepts are gendered with a heavy focus on girls and women. 
The purity myth is rooted in the idea that women and young girls are gatekeepers of sexuality and the burden of purity falls on their shoulders. This certainly doesn't mean that myths about virginity don't affect people who don't identify as women, but the typical conceptualization is very gendered. Okay, so purity culture and virginity myths are about maintaining, and in some cases, re-establishing control over women's bodies and behavior. The concept of virginity reinforces patriarchal power and is beneficial to those who want traditional gender roles to be maintained. Tying a girl or woman's value to her virginal status or her purity leaves her very little room for sexual empowerment. Although concepts of virginity and purity are a big deal in many places around the world, I want to focus on the purity culture among Christians in the U.S., where women's sexual experience or agency is considered detrimental to traditional gender roles. In fact, conservatives for a long time have used these myths to fight against feminism. Writer Jessica Valenti has written extensively about this, and her book The Purity Myth has also been made into a documentary. Here is Valenti from the documentary responding to a series of soundbites from conservative commentators emphasizing traditional gender roles. It's really about reinforcing traditional gender roles and restoring the old gender order. And this is where the purity myth links up with the larger backlash against feminism and women's equality that's been preoccupying conservatives and evangelicals for decades. Also, by ingraining the idea that premarital sex is sinful and morally wrong, it inherently reinforces the idea that young people need to get married. In the documentary, How to Lose Your Virginity, Myths and Misogyny Around a Rite of Passage, they discuss common anecdotes of people getting married earlier than they would have or to someone they weren't sure about because it was the only visible path to sex. This is totally something I remember hearing about growing up. So purity culture has the effect of controlling women's sexuality and pressuring people into marriage in order to be good Christians. Although purity culture is mostly associated with girls and women, one of the first things I thought of when I started thinking about this episode was the Jonas Brothers wearing purity rings. The three brothers famously wore these rings meant to symbolize their ongoing purity, and it became something that tons of other young stars did. For a long time, I thought it was just a famous person thing, but it turns out that various forms of public virginity pledging are actually routinely practiced in the U.S., so I wanted to do a little digging. The National Longitudinal Study of Adolescent Health collected data in the U.S. from the mid-1990s to the early 2000s, from girls in grades 7 to 12. These data have been used in a few studies in the last 15 years that look at virginity pledging. Five years after the initial survey, over 80% of pledgers denied having ever made a pledge, and over 80% of pledgers and non-pledgers reported having engaged in sexual intercourse. Furthermore, pledgers who hadn't gotten married reported less birth control and condom use and were more likely to have had a pregnancy in those five years compared to non-pledgers. These data suggest that not only does virginity pledging not significantly decrease sexual activity, it is associated with riskier sexual behavior when it comes to barriers and contraceptives. Another longitudinal study looked at virginity pledging in adolescents aged 12 to 16 in California. This study showed that formal public virginity pledging did not reduce the likelihood that participants would initiate sexual activity over a one-year period, but private pledging was associated with reduced likelihood of engaging in sexual activity. To me, it makes sense that preteens and teens raised in a sex-negative culture would make private virginity pledges because they want to, quote, do the right thing. However, public pledging seems to be quite a bit more extreme because it's just that, public. Involving adult members of your community or family to hold you accountable and staying pure sounds like a breeding ground for shame. 
especially when we know that research suggests that most adolescents will explore their sexuality to some extent at some point. But what tops even that, in my opinion, are purity balls, which take public pledging to a new level. Purity balls, a practice founded in 1998 in Colorado Springs by Randy and Lisa Wilson, are father-daughter dances where daughters publicly pledge their ongoing virginity to their fathers and fathers pledge to protect their daughter's purity at all costs. The goal is to have such an intense and formative event that it will lead the young girls to not have any premarital sex while also reinforcing the duty of fathers to protect their daughter's purity. This is done by creating a grand event with big, impactful ceremonies. On top of being an inherently elitist practice, purity balls are incredibly manipulative because it not only ties a young girl's value to her body, but also her father's approval and love. Not to mention it openly insinuates that young women are their father's property. Reading about purity balls, what struck me was how confusing it must be to get such strong yet contradictory messages. Your family and community are encouraging abstinence while also focusing so intensely on your sexuality. Although veiled in vague language about purity, these events are about young girls' bodies and focus an entire community's attention on their sexuality. On the surface, these events are filled with smiling fathers and daughters all dressed up and dancing. But when you strip it down, families are expecting that girls as young as six or seven make a promise to their father that they won't engage in sex before marriage. I never experienced any public virginity pledging events, but I was talking to a friend about this and she told me about her experience in Canadian Catholic middle school. Apparently, the girls were given necklaces with locks as a reminder to save themselves because, quote, God is the only one with the key to your heart. So although purity balls may not be as prevalent to practice in Canada as they are in the U.S., purity culture definitely still exists here. Beyond the religious and cultural expectations, there are also non-religious reasons that individuals choose to abstain from sex, but they're still rooted in purity culture and the misconception that once you have intercourse one time, you can't go back. For example, take the common saying, I'm waiting for Mr. Right. Purity culture perpetuates this idea that once you have sex with someone, you'll be tied to them emotionally for life, and so you need to find the perfect person, which is just another convoluted way to try and control young women and their sexuality. So what are the consequences of this obsession with virginity? The obsession with virginity and purity has led to an explosion of abstinence educators in the U.S. Abstinence-only educators and advocates who promote myths about purity often say that their goal is reducing teen pregnancies and STIs, but the research just doesn't support that. There was a study published in 2008 that collected data from over 2,000 students of varying ages in four U.S. states. Students either participated in one of four abstinence-only education programs or are part of the control group. When comparing abstinence-only programs and the control, this study showed no significant differences on rate of abstinence, number of sexual partners, age of first sexual intercourse, rates of unprotected sex, number of pregnancies, or STIs. Participants in an abstinence-only education program had better knowledge of which protective measures were not effective, but not of protective measures that were effective. Essentially, they knew what didn't work, but not what did. A more recent study published in 2017 showed that state-mandated abstinence-based sex ed curriculums across five U.S. states did not affect teen birth rates or the rate of teen abortions, and even potentially increased STI rates. The message that promoting purity is about protecting women and their health is just a cover for the culture meant to obtain control over women. 
Once you pick apart the evidence, it becomes blatantly clear that the concept of virginity does not prevent premarital sex, non-marital pregnancies, or STIs, which means it's not about that. It's about reinforcing an ideology that supports traditional gender roles. And it's not just me saying that. President George W. Bush's former Surgeon General, Dr. Richard Carmona, went on CNN in 2007 to say that abstinence-only education and the other sexual health and reproductive stances that Bush took as president went knowingly against research. Dr. Carmona is quoted in the CNN segment transcript saying, It was a struggle because we knew scientifically that abstinence-only was not a scientifically-based policy. It was one that was based more on ideology. Science clearly said that we needed to have a more comprehensive approach, which is what I advocated from the beginning. Controlling women by tying their value to what they do with their bodies is a widely used mechanism of control. But when it fails, there are also often direct, harmful, and even violent methods used to reestablish control over the individual or other women in a family or community. An example that is unfortunately widespread across the world is various forms of slut-shaming. Shaming and disparaging women for what people think they are doing or have done with their bodies is a way to try and force them to live a more acceptable life or at least use them as an example for other women so that they believe it's safest to submit to patriarchal norms and traditions associated with purity. Along with the ways in which virginity is used to control women and their bodies, it is also a concept used to invalidate everything outside of heterosexuality. Virginity is most commonly viewed as the state of not having had penis and vagina penetrative sex, which by that definition means that those who are not straight and have never engaged in a straight sexual relationship are perpetual virgins. This idea of virginity conflates sex and vaginal sexual intercourse, which not only invalidates non-heteronormative sexual relationships, but also creates a hierarchy of sexual acts in which PVI is the pinnacle. In reality, most people aren't having sex to reproduce, so the ultimate act doesn't need to be vaginal sexual intercourse. As well as reinforcing patriarchy and heteronormative ideas, the myth about purity is also racist. The symbol of purity is white and not just in clothing and wedding dresses. Young, thin, white girls are used as symbols of purity, while black women are hypersexualized. There is a long history of black women being seen as sexually voracious and overly sexual since the days of slavery, as well as a long history of the Jezebel stereotype that paints black women as constantly overtly sexual. Black girls and women are not even considered by white evangelicals as having the possibility of purity. The virgin whore dichotomy is in many cases racialized, which is incredibly dangerous and harmful in a sex-negative society where purity is associated with good and being sexually active or promiscuous is considered bad. It all ties into ideas of young white girls being innocent, while equally young black women are not seen the same way by society and, importantly, by legal systems. Although the virgin whore dichotomy is harmful across society, the racialization of hypersexualization means that certain communities face the consequences more often and to a greater extent. So now that we know a little more about the myth of virginity, who it benefits, and the subsequent consequences, let's talk about the hymen. As I have repeated throughout the episode, the concept of virginity is a social construction, and so no, there are no anatomical features of the female reproductive system that can act as an indicator of virginity. However, the hymen is still widely considered to be connected to virginity. It's why we hear things like, she popped her cherry. But the concept of virginity existed long before the hymen was named in the 1500s. So how did this association come to be? 
Now, what actually is the hymen? Most people think about the hymen as something that breaks or pops when someone with a vagina has intercourse for the first time, but that's just not true. The hymen is a piece of tissue left over from early fetal development that surrounds the vaginal opening. It is one end of the vaginal canal, opposite to the cervix at the other end. Adam Ruins Everything, a YouTube series that debunks myths and common misconceptions, has a great video where they highlight how the hymen isn't actually a covering, but more a border. If you've gone through life thinking of the hymen as something that breaks or pops the first time a female has vaginal intercourse, it may be hard to visualize, so I recommend checking out their video. It will be linked in the show notes. So for most people, the hymen is actually a membrane that goes around the edge of the vagina. There's variability in thickness and how much of the vagina is covered, but for most people, it is not much. In the cultural understanding of sexuality, Bleeding from the breakage of the hymen is associated with first sexual intercourse and is often seen as a sign of lost virginity. But many people don't bleed at all the first time they experience vaginal penetration. This is because the hymen doesn't actually break. Tearing of the hymen can cause some bleeding, but because of the relatively low blood supply to the hymen, tearing might not even lead to significant bleeding. If bleeding does happen, it is more likely from small cuts in the vaginal wall, which is a result of force during penetration, moving too quickly, or underlubrication, which are all reasons for potential hymen tearing as well. If the person is turned on, vagina is well lubricated, and penetration happens slowly, there will likely not be blood. The fact that bleeding during vaginal intercourse is considered so common is not because it happens to everyone with a vagina if they have sexual intercourse. In fact, it might actually suggest that people are just having underlubricated and excessively forceful sex. Also, many people have stretched their hymens during other activities, like horseback riding or by putting things in their vagina when masturbating or using tampons. For some, the hymen has already been stretched before they experience sexual penetration with a partner. To reinforce and perpetuate the virginity myth, hymens were used to make the whole thing seem scientific or real. It allowed people to say that the first time you have sex, something breaks and you can never put it back together again. This idea of the breaking hymen helps make vaginal intercourse seem like a threshold that once passed cannot be reversed. The intentional misunderstanding of the hymen has been used to give validity to tons of harmful and incredibly inaccurate metaphors of women. For example, that women are akin to pieces of tape that once used lose their stickiness. Just listen to famous abstinence-only educator Pam Stenzel explain this to a room full of high school students. When I didn't used to speak so much, I used to use duct tape, packing tape. I'd take it with me and I'd say sex is the ability to bond two people together just like this tape. I'd take a big piece of that tape, rip it off, roll up my sleeve, and just wrap that duct tape around my arm. And it'd stick really good the first time I did that. So I don't want the tape here anymore and i just rip it off and pieces of my arm would come with the back of the tape. Move it on to the next person who was lucky enough to sit close and stick it to their arm. It'll stick a little. Never as good as the first time. Ah, stick a little. Rip it off their arm. Now we got junk from their arm and my arm on the back of this tape. Move it on to the next person. Stick it there. Rip it off their arm. Now we got junk from theirs and theirs and mine. And pretty soon this tape's going to stick to nothing at all. It's got so much junk from everywhere it's been. This idea that people have limited bonding power is not true. Just like we can bond with multiple parents, friends, and children, we can bond with multiple partners. And there's no big change that happens when a vagina is penetrated for the first time. You cannot tell someone's sexual history based on looking at their vulva or vagina. One study that is often used to highlight how inaccurate these ideas about the hymen are had medical professionals examine 36 pregnant adolescents for signs of penetration. 
In only two cases could they find what were deemed definitive results. Having vaginal intercourse does not cause irreversible changes in a vagina having bodies. So in summary, the hymen is not indicative of virgin status because A, virginity isn't real, as in you can't have or not have it, and B, it doesn't actually give conclusive evidence as to whether a vagina has been penetrated, so it isn't even an indicator of whether an individual has had vaginal intercourse. Unfortunately, despite huge amounts of evidence that hymens don't indicate whether a vagina has been penetrated, virginity testing is still practiced. A virginity test is a physical examination of the hymen used to determine or attempt to determine whether the patient has had penetrative vaginal sex. These tests sometimes involve medical staff using two fingers to measure the diameter of the vaginal opening because if it's smaller, that supposedly means that the hymen hasn't been stretched or torn by penetration. This technique is referred to as the two-finger test. A recent example that made major headlines was the rapper T.I. telling two podcast hosts that he takes his 18-year-old daughter to the gynecologist each year to have her hymen examined so he can feel confident that she's a virgin. I will link to the clip in the show notes. T.I. is certainly not the first father who felt entitled to please a young woman's body and sexuality, which is absurd. What makes it even more ridiculous is that these tests don't even work. The appearance of a hymen is not an accurate indicator of sexual history because of natural variations, because it can tear or stretch from other things, and furthermore, because medical professionals are generally under-trained in the morphology of the hymen anyway. Despite this, virginity testing still happens. The World Health Organization and UN called virginity testing unscientific and a human rights violation in 2018, releasing a statement calling for the end of the practice. However, it can pose a complex ethical dilemma for physicians because there are documented social and familial repercussions for many women if they cannot be certified as a virgin. Regardless of the scientific evidence, people still do think that virgins will have intact hymens that when broken from PVI will cause bleeding. And that can cause huge issues for women who do not bleed during their first intercourse, whether that's shame, shunning, intimate partner violence, or even honor killings. Because of the attention put on hymens and virginity, it's not surprising that there are surgeries that can be performed to restore hymens. Hymen restorations are pretty much a few stitches used to narrow the vaginal opening. This type of surgery is sometimes referred to as a hymenoplasty, hymen restoration, or re-virginization surgery. The procedure is done around the world. There are even clinics across Canada that advertise it. Canadian clinic websites outline possible reasons for seeking a hymen restoration, as including re-virginization, hymen injury, cultural or religious reasons, and psychological healing from traumatic sexual events. A lot of this is problematic because it's based on the idea that virginity is a physical trait and the hymen is something that can even be injured. It's frustrating that medical professionals are perpetuating this harmful myth. So we know about the myths around virginity and what the patriarchal powers that be think about it. But what about the average young person? How do people generally define virginity and sex? In a 2001 study that included interviews with 61 people from around the Philadelphia area, only four participants said that coitus, or penis and vagina sex, was required for virginity loss. Every other participant said that other sexual acts could be considered grounds for virginity loss. In a more recent study published in 2017, over 900 university students in the U.S. South filled out questionnaires regarding their definitions of sex, abstinence, and virginity. 
That data showed that over 80% of participants answered that penile anal intercourse constitutes sex, and over 40% said that oral genital contact was sex. This study shows the inconsistency in people's definitions of sex and virginity and highlights that it is a constructive concept. It isn't something specific or clear or universally understood. Beyond diverse definitions of sex and virginity, there's also different ways of looking at virginity loss. In 2002, Laura Carpenter published a study in which 61 18- to 35-year-olds were interviewed about virginity loss. Three distinct themes came out, virginity as a gift, a stigma, and a process. Over half of the women and only some of the men viewed virginity as some form of gift. This makes sense because the purity myth is based around virginity as a gift and it targets women. Over half of the men considered virginity to be a stigma, something that only some of the women reported. This creates a dynamic where men might be seeking to lose their stigmatized virgin status, while many women often feel they need to save their gift of virginity for the right person or right time. This can be harmful because if sex occurs within this dynamic, someone is likely going to be disappointed or feel shame. If it happens quickly, the gift giver might feel shame, and if a pair waits, the stigmatized individual might feel the weight of that. In fact, Carpenter points out that viewing it as a gift generally disempowers women, while virginity as a stigma does that for men. However, thinking of virginity as part of a process is not generally disempowering to men or women, likely because it is a way of seeing the initiation of sexual activity as a step, but not necessarily a loss or some target that needs to be hit. It is not inherently positive or negative, it just is. Interestingly, Gender differences were at their lowest within this category of people who considered losing their virginity to be part of a process. To me, this makes sense, because whoever you are and whether you're rushing to lose your virginity or trying to save it, being sexually active with a partner for the first time is really just a step. Moving from the perspective that virginity is a gift that is given away or a benchmark that needs to be reached, to thinking of sexual debut as part of a process, a step just like any other first, could help reduce disempowerment and hopefully increase empowerment and sexual agency. Virginity as a gift, which is the basis of the purity myth, implies that sexual debut must be saved for a worthy recipient and potentially an appropriate time, and that it has to be a magical experience, which sets some pretty high expectations and standards. So when lots of people inevitably don't feel like they've met those expectations or their experience didn't live up to what it was supposed to be like, they can experience a lot of shame or disappointment. On the other hand, stigmatizing virginity, which is seen in pop culture with movies like The 40-Year-Old Virgin, can lead people to feel like they need to rush into having sex or that it's going to be the best thing ever, which again sets a lot of expectations for young people and can be the source of a lot of stress, anxiety, and again, shame. What I like about looking at virginity within the framework of a process is that there is no inherent value attached to it, which can allow every individual to feel like their experiences are valid and okay, while also recognizing that it is a big deal for a lot of people. Also, by thinking of the beginning phase of a person's active sexual life as a process, maybe we can move away from penis and vagina sex as the ultimate threshold that we often see it as now. Seeing sexual activity of any kind as part of a larger process that can be full of lots of different steps and pauses and backtracking is the direction to move toward so that young people can feel empowered and in control of their sexuality. Thanks, Julia. That's all for this episode. If you have any feedback or peer review of this episode, I'm always excited to hear from you. You can send me a voice memo recorded on your phone or just a written email to doweknowthings at gmail.com. 
You can find a script for this episode with references and extra info on the website at doweknowthings.com. All music and sounds in this episode are by Jeremy Dahl. Check him out at palebluedot.ca. Script assistance by Matt Tunnicliffe. This episode was written and hosted by Julia Kaufman. This is Julia. I'd like to thank my sister Lily for helping with the early brainstorming of this episode. I'm Lisa Don Hamilton. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at DoWeKnowThings, and you can email me at DoWeKnowThings at gmail.com. Do We Know Things is released every second Monday, and you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Of course, I would love it if you could subscribe and rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time on Do We Know Things. <laughs>